Welcome to another episode of the SaaS Podcast. I'm your host, Omar Khan, and this is a show where I interview proven founders and industry experts who share their stories, strategies, and insights to help you build, launch, and grow your SaaS business. In this episode, I talked to Neha Sampat, the founder and CEO of ContentStack, a headless CMS that empowers businesses to manage and deliver digital content across various channels and devices. In 2018, Neha spotted an opportunity to transform a services-focused company she'd been running for several years into an enterprise SaaS business. Content Stack started out as just a simple form for editing mobile content without requiring developer involvement. Today, the company has raised $169 million, grown to a team of over 200 people, and is trusted by many of the world's top brands. In this episode, you'll learn about Neha's journey of bootstrapping Content Stack for the first 10 years and the valuable lessons she learned from that experience. We talk about how Neha tackled challenges such as balancing short-term revenue goals with long-term vision and navigating a male-dominated industry. We also talk about the process Neha used to transition Content Stack from a services-focused business to an enterprise SaaS company and the surprising reason behind Neha's decision not to raise any money for the first 10 years and the lessons she's learned from raising $169 million. It's an inspiring story, emphasizing the importance of perseverance, customer focus, and building a strong team and culture. So I hope you enjoy it. Are you looking to sell your online business or buy one to start your entrepreneurial journey? Discover exciting opportunities with Bupos.com. Bupos is the number one platform for buying and selling profitable online businesses and the first to offer built-in acquisition financing for qualified buyers. At Bupos.com, you can explore their exclusive listings, browse listings from other marketplaces, or submit your own deal for approval. Bupos can offer pre-approved financing for recurring revenue businesses, allowing you to access fast funding with no personal guarantees. And their experienced M&A advisory team supports you every step of the way. To learn more, visit sasclub.io slash Bupos. That's sasclub.io slash B-O-O-P-O-S. Sign up today and get qualified to sell your business or find your next deal. Is your team struggling with spreadsheets that can't keep up with your workflows? It's time to switch to Jotform Tables. Jotform Tables is an all-in-one workspace that lets you collect, organize, and manage data seamlessly. Not only can you create online forms to gather data directly in Jotform Tables, but it also serves as a powerful tool to manage and analyze the data collected from your existing Jotform forms. You can also import spreadsheets or enter information manually, and all your data is stored securely in one place. Jotform Tables makes collaboration a breeze. You can share your tables with a single click and work with your team in real time. Say goodbye to version control issues and hello to efficient teamwork. Get started with Jotform tables for free today at sasclub.io slash jotform. That's sasclub.io slash jotform. Hey there, SaaS founders. Are you looking to grow your B2B SaaS business to the first million in annual recurring revenue? I've got something that can help you. Introducing the SaaS Club newsletter, your weekly source of proven strategies, practical insights, and exclusive interviews with successful B2B SaaS founders who have been in your shoes and are ready to share what they've learned. Each week, you'll get a quick five-minute read delivered straight to your inbox full of growth tactics, lessons learned, and insider tips to help you tackle those early stage challenges and grow your business to seven figures and beyond. So what are you waiting for? Head over over to sasclub.io slash newsletter and join over 4,000 other SaaS founders and entrepreneurs who are already using these insights to grow their businesses. Subscribe to the SaaS Club newsletter today and get the support you need to keep moving forward on your SaaS journey. Neha, welcome to the show. Hey there. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me on. Do you have a favorite quote, something that inspires or motivates you that you can share with us? 
Absolutely. So this is something I start almost all of my my big all hands meetings with at Content Stack, and that is if it was easy, anybody would do it. <laughs> and uh, it's kind of stuck with me as an entrepreneur for all these years. Yeah, love it. So tell us about Content Stack. What does the product do? Who's it for? And what's the main problem you're helping to solve? For sure. Yeah. So Content Stack um, was founded in 2018, spun out of a services company that I used to run called Raw Engineering. We are now 450 people across 18 countries, and we've raised 169 million of capital since we started. So, um, you know, well on our way with our Series C under our belt. So we help a lot of large brands like Asics and Chase and Holiday Inn and Express and Mattel and others to carry out their visions for digital experiences. And when we think about digital experiences, that means what they're showing on the web to engage with customers, but as, but as well, all the other omni-channel ways that people are consuming digital content, like mobile apps, billboards, smartwatches, and other things. So really, we've created a product that allows you to build digital experiences at the speed of your imagination. So when I was looking into content stack, I read it was described as a, a headless CMS. Mm-hmm. Um, from what I understand, it, it's more than that as well. But uh, for people who aren't familiar, can you just explain what that term means? Yes, it's my my favorite term that I hate. <laughs> so, um, headless is such a gruesome term, but in in technical terms, essentially what it means is that if you're familiar with um, the the term API, it's it's the API layer. So. Um, when you think about a website, for example, you've got sort of the brains or the heart behind the website, and then you've got the presentation layer, which is what you consume as a as an end user. So when you go to a um, a website and you're looking around, you're seeing what is the head or the presentation of the content. What's really happening behind the scenes is that there's a lot of code and there's a lot of structure to, you know, if someone clicks on this, then show this type of logic. That's the piece that Content Stack empowers. The, the front end or the head is the part that's built by the customer or the end user of content stack. So headless basically separates the presentation layer from the code. And one of the benefits of doing that is rather than having somebody going off and creating a piece of content and designing a web page and how it's going to look and be laid out, et cetera, you, you give people a way to basically kind of enter that data into the, the CMS and then it can get rendered in all different kinds of ways. Absolutely. You you said it right. And so it's basically, it's like the heart behind all of the content that you care about and all the logic that goes with that. How it's consumed or presented could be, it could be mobile, it could be a smartwatch, it could be any type of display where digital content exists. And being able to build that logic once and then deploy it to all the different places is the power of the platform. Great. And you gave us some impressive numbers uh, a little earlier, and you talked about $169 million that you've raised and the size of the team, 450 people. I think it's also important to point out that you bootstrapped the business for the first 11 years. So that's an interesting part of the story as well. And we're going to talk a little bit about that uh, a bit later. Before we we sort of get into like how you came up with the idea, or maybe this will lead to how you came up with the idea, like what were you doing before you started Content Stack? Yep. So prior to Content Stack, I was running a digital services agency called Raw Engineering. And prior to that, which led me to Raw Engineering, I was I was building and running the web store for a large 
Fortune 1000 company called VMware. And that was very early days of e-commerce. We were still figuring out how, you know, what the best practices were for web as a channel. And what I found is in large companies, VMware was not alone in this, it becomes really hard to do really cool things very fast because there's a lot of red tape and there's a lot of processes and you have to go through five committees to get anything approved. And I really wanted to, like the impetus was I want to unblock that. I want to make it easy for talented people to use their talent inside organizations. And that's powerful for the individuals who are talented, but it's also really powerful for enterprise organizations that want to unlock that talent. So I started Raw Engineering to essentially help to unlock that talent through services. And the idea was, let's find those people that are super talented that want to do cool things, but help them use the technologies they have and also supplement that with the right services or other tools. And what we found is two to three years into that journey, everybody was trying to do really cool things for mobile, and there was nothing out there that allowed them to do that. So we created the first iteration of Content Stack, which was a very simple form for you to be able to edit content in mobile without having to go to IT, without having to file tickets, without having to wait for a developer. And that empowered business users to do really cool and interesting things, engaging their end users and changing inventory on the fly to address demand and personalizing experiences and all that good stuff. So that was the beginning of realizing that there was something big missing in the market and we could help address that pain point. So when you built that that first version of the form, were you thinking about this as a product or was this like, hey, this is just something which is going to make it easier for us to run our services business? It was a little bit more the latter, to be really honest. It was it was sort of empowering. We had a very services DNA, services mindset. So it was really empowering our customers to be able to do things faster. And we did sell it as a product. We It was an add-on license to our services, but we were really a services business at the time. All right. So at what point did this this tool, like at what point did it become a product? At what point did you see that there's a, there's a bigger opportunity here and ultimately you want to be running a product business. Like not, 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 not in terms of like how long it took you to kind of make that transition. Cause that's the next part of the question, but like, when did you have that aha moment? Yeah, for sure. So um, kind of on that timeline, right? So 2011, we realized we need to build something to make it easier. So we, by 2012 had that offered to some of our services customers by 2013, it became a product that was kind of a mobile CMS, if you will. And by 2014, Forrester had written the first report in the market about the pioneers of headless CMS and Content Stack was named among those pioneers. There were three companies named at the time. And so by 2014, there was product market fit and an opportunity. And that's when we had the light bulb that we should be selling this as a product and not just an add-on to our services. And so that was the beginning of us selling Content Stack as a standalone content management system as a software license without necessarily attaching our services. That was the beginning of that journey. By 2016, we realized the market was even bigger than we anticipated. And by 2017, we decided to split the companies into three. And January 1st of 2018 is when we spun Content Stack out of raw engineering and it became a standalone company. And that through that whole part of the journey, we were fully bootstrapped. And is, is the services part of the business still up and running, or did you eventually shut that down and focus on the product completely? So I, I'm not playing an operating role at Raw Engineering anymore, but it still is a standalone company that's operating. Got it. Great. Okay. Um, so let's talk about 
like at what point, like you, you described the first version of Content Stack as a simple form that make, made life easier for people to publish stuff on mobile. But at what point did you feel like, you know, there was a product that you could actually feel good charging people for? And, and what, did it, what did it do at that point? Yeah, so um, it evolved from 2011 to 2014 into a more full-fledged content management system, which essentially is the first variation of what um, what we have today with content management. It's It powered the whole back end of websites, mobile apps, and all types of other digital displays. And it did it in a way that was complex enough to create integrations to anything else with a quote-unquote API. And there were you know, user privileges built in and all kinds of other complexities that businesses would typically need in order to build out a, a, an enterprise level web experience or digital experience. So that was um, that was in the works. So between 2011 and 2014 is really when we did um, a lot of heavy lifting and turning it into a full-fledged CMS product. And what were you charging for the product at the time? <laughs> it went from Gosh, I think at the beginning we were probably charging two fifty or three hundred bucks a month, and you know now we have customers paying a million dollars a year, so or more. So it's been it's been quite the journey. It's a big spread. So I'm I'm trying to understand like who who is your target customer here? Like I mean you know I come from a completely different world. So when someone says to me CMS, I'm thinking about WordPress and Webflow and all of these kinds of things, and to know that not only is there an an opportunity or a market out there for a product like content stack but actually it's a really big opportunity right so who who are these customers like like who was your ideal customer like when you shifted to the product focus back then maybe that's the same target customer today maybe it isn't but like what what were the types of companies that you were you were going after yeah, I'd say in the earlier days, because the the term headless CMS or, you know, even just the idea of APIs were so new. If you think about like when people talk about building software now, they they talk about um, monolithic versus API or microservices based. And we've always been in the microservices based camp. So two or three years ago, it was only really like really early adopters or people that had a, a vision for microservices being the better way that were engaging with us. Today, we're kind of in what I consider the early mainstream of brands deciding that microservices or composable or API first, there's a lot of terms for it, is the way to build software, right? And so we went from uh, finding like the change makers in organizations to now what is typically a regular part of any content management system evaluation at any large business. And when I think about large businesses, I'm thinking Fortune 1000 businesses or businesses that have digital as a core part of their strategy or infrastructure. And then inside those organizations, it's typically someone who's leading digital that has sort of the digital side of marketing as part of their charter, or even the head of IT or in the CIO world. And often, and most times, it's someone on both the business side and the technical side because they have to come together to figure out how they're going to not only build something really awesome, but do it in a way that's going to have an impact on the bottom line of the business. And so we typically are selling into multiple parts of an organization in a deal. So when you and I were talking uh, before we started recording, I asked you about where your initial customers came from and you said inbound. And I, and I was like, 
no, that that was after all the the hustle of the first 10, 20, 30 customers. And then you started kind of getting inbound working. And you said, no, 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 inbound work like pretty much from day one. Can you tell us about that? Like, as I said to you, I think that's a founder's dream, build a product and, and customers just turn up. Like, what was it that allowed that kind of situation, um, you know, to work for you? Yeah. I mean, if you go back to like, just thinking about that time, right, it was such a critical time in digital transformation for the industry. And there was three main things that were driving that. The first of which was companies were starting to adopt cloud computing and moving away from buying everything that they then had to install and manage on their own servers. And then you had the advent of mobile applications with the iPhone coming out in 2008 and that then starting to impact how enterprises thought about mobile and bringing mobile to work. And do I have to build mobile apps now for my employees? And then the third piece, which is the beginning of the SaaS world, right? So um, software as a service, empowering people to kind of democratize the productivity tools they use at work or the things that they do to be more creative at work. And so all of those coming together created a little bit of a mess because nothing was like talking to each other, people were like taking things into their own hands to move quickly because they were so frustrated with, with uh, you know, the IT challenges that they faced inside organizations. So that led to looking for something that would help them manage all this stuff. And when they were looking for that, because we were one of the, the very early um, headless CMSs, they found us. It was, um, you know, us being one of the first websites that had headless CMS in the the header, right? So um, we were just at the right place at the right time and addressing a really big need in the market. Is that what people were searching for, like headless CMS solutions? It was often headless CMS because that was a term that even the analysts had started to use, or mobile content management, or um, API-based content management. Those were kind of the main terms that drove people towards us. And the analysts, like this was like Gartner or, or folks like that talking about these terms? Correct. Yeah. Okay. Got it. Okay. And so there's not many out there at the time. And so people are finding you and discovering content stack. How did you figure out what to charge for, for the product at the time? You know, $250 a month compared to, you know, a million dollars plus a year are worlds apart and I'm sure the product has evolved and improved and does, you know, delivers a ton more value, but it still seems like a huge difference. So was it about right for what the product did at the time or was it just kind of like, you know, a random number you just came up with? Really, honestly, like as a startup, we were pricing probably lower than we um, needed to. And it was really just to kind of get the attention and, and learn um, we eventually figured out how much value we were really providing to brands. We were figuring out how much it would cost us to scale the software and manage the software. And we eventually landed on um, three different tiers of pricing that matched the needs of businesses. And typically it would be based on the number of digital properties they were using, the number of users that were engaged. And then sometimes there was like add-on features or add-on SLAs that we would um, build into the pricing. And so a lot of it was just like, triangulating, right? Cost, willingness to pay and budgets and, um, and value that we're bringing to the table. Can we talk, I want to talk a little bit about onboarding and I want to try and figure out what, what was the process or the steps that a customer had to go through to adopt content stack? You know, obviously if they're using a, a different CMS or a, a monolith solution, as you kind of, you know, described it, 
they can potentially run it in parallel and and start doing you know testing small things or maybe they have to figure out what that migration looks like but either way it sounds like a lot of work a lot of complexity and a lot of potential pain for a customer so number one they must they probably have to be like super motivated to want to do you know all of this and make these changes and two like what kind of issues were you seeing and and what if anything were you able to do to to make that onboarding easier for customers so so the the beauty in all of this is um monoliths are hard and they're complicated um and they require a very specialized skill set so you have to have special um systems integrators or very specialized and expensive talent inside your organization to run and manage and implement those systems the difference with a headless cms is you provide SDKs that are very common languages to be able to implement against it. SDKs are software development kits. And so if you have a web developer that knows how to do HTML, CMS, and some JavaScript, they will be able to do what another developer that's probably three to four times as expensive can do on a monolithic system. So that it cuts out some of the, the complexity and the cost and empowers more people to be able to do more with the software. And then to the flip side of someone has to be very motivated, they are motivated because they are trying to do things. They'll buy software, they'll spend millions of dollars in the combination of the license plus the systems integrators or services component. And it will take them one, two, sometimes three years to get to where they thought they would be able to get in six to 12 months. And by then, they've already made the investment. They kind of have to see it through. But there's so much frustration there that they want to do something different the next time. And that's where we really shine because we can help them make that happen. And we can help them make it happen pretty fast. Let's talk about the first 11 years of of bootstrapping the business. I know you don't disclose revenue, but like ballpark, like where were you at the end of those 10, 11 years as a bootstrap business, like were you over a million ARR, multiple seven-figure business, like and, and generally, like how many customers did you have then? When we spun out um, Content Stack from Raw Engineering in 2018, we had a couple dozen customers and we were over a million in ARR. So it was a good head start for sure for not for having bootstrapped and not having ever raised any capital. But it was only there was only up to go from there essentially, and it was a wasn't an easy ride to get to that point. Did you did you try to raise money during that period or were you were you just committed to the idea of just bootstrapping like what was what was your driver or your motivation to bootstrap for for so many years? You know, honestly, in hindsight, we just didn't really know better. You know, I was kind of was doing what I knew how to do and I knew how to build a profitable services business that could fund the R&D aspects of the other side projects I actually had three SaaS businesses underneath the raw engineering umbrella. And um, in hindsight, I would have probably raised money a little bit earlier, maybe one to two years earlier in order to really give content stack, the go-to-market team it needed to get ahead of the market. But we didn't, we, um, we did what we knew how to do, which was continue to bootstrap and just like, you know, the, the crawl, walk, run approach of add one more person when we could afford it, add one more person when we could afford it. So we probably lost the opportunity to get a lead in the early market share because of that. Are you an entrepreneur looking to buy a profitable online business or a founder ready to sell? 
Bupas is the number one platform for buying and selling profitable online businesses. With their exclusive listings, as well as listings from other marketplaces, and the option to submit your own deal for approval, Bupas has you covered. Plus, they're the first to offer built-in acquisition financing for qualified buyers of recurring revenue businesses, allowing you to access fast funding without personal guarantees. And their experienced M&A advisory team supports you every step of the way. To learn more, visit sasclub.io slash bupos. That's sasclub.io slash B-O-O-P-O-S. Sign up today and get qualified to start your entrepreneurial journey or sell your business at the right valuation with bupos.com. And then when you did decide to go out and raise money, was that fairly easy given the traction that you already had and, you know, you're a seven-figure business? It should have been easy, but it in reality, not really, because, you know, we still had to prove ourselves as a SaaS company. So we spun out of a, 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 a services company. It was kind of our first run at being a SaaS company. And whenever we had conversations with investors, there was the the sort of hesitation or reluctance because they didn't know if we knew how to do it. So it wasn't as easy as it should have been given our numbers and our metrics, but we got there eventually. And the reality is by the time we raised capital, it was like late 2019. So we had continued to run the business. We had continued to build on it. I was able to get some seed capital in um, through a convertible note, which gave us enough runway to build out the go-to-market team. And by the time we raised our Series A, we were able to do a pretty large Series A at a high valuation just because we had grown so much in a year and a half. Was this the first time that you'd raised money? Yes. What were the main kind of challenges that you you, you had to overcome? You, you talked about kind of proving yourself as a SaaS business, but what what were investors expecting to see from you? So I, I think the biggest thing is I didn't really know how. And um, in hindsight, I probably would have gotten some better coaching or had someone on my team that had done it before. I always encourage founders to find a coach or find somebody that like a mentor to help them through the process. Cause it's actually, after you've been through it a few times, it's not that complicated. It's just how you, you know, the first impression is so important. And I was so passionate about my team and the product that I was less focused on maybe some of the metrics that they cared about or other things, not because they didn't exist, but because I just wasn't, you know, really clear, clear on how to present them. So yeah, I mean, in terms of the metrics, there's always like the common words, like how much traction do you have? Prove that you can still have this traction once you've spun out. We had all of that. That wasn't really a problem. It was probably more in how we presented it. And to be fair, I also don't look like a typical founder. And so I think that that automatically creates a little bit of a barrier. <laughs> what do you mean by that? Well, as you probably know, only about 3% of all venture capital goes to female-led companies. So already it, it either is kind of sets you apart or it creates some sort of a bias that you may or may not really realize exists. So I think that was something that was happening. I didn't realize it was happening until much later. Uh, I spoke to uh, a founder, actually a two women led uh, SaaS business. And she had actually, before starting the SaaS business, had served active duty in Afghanistan and done all kinds of crazy things, jumping out of parachute, you know, airplanes and parachutes and things like that. And and she was like talking to investors and they were asking her like, you know, do you really want to do something this hard? And and she was like, you know, I've 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 done hard things, right? It's like I don't know why you think that 
this is going to be any any harder for me. But yeah, it's it's kind of a. I I I I like to think that that situation is improving, but um, yeah, it's it's still it's it's still uh, certainly challenging. I think for 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 a lot of uh, female founders. So how how long did it take to actually close close that first round? So we didn't start fundraising until a few months after we spun out, and then by the end of 2018, so probably six months into the process, I closed the um, the convertible note. And um, and then it was a year later that I closed the Series A. So uh, we talked about inbound as being, uh, you know, the the sort of the stars aligned and and all of these you know, external circumstances, and you had people looking for a solution like yours, and that eventually got you up to kind of like the Series A stage. You then had to focus a lot more on on kind of demand gen and education. Tell us a little bit about that. Like, what was the shift you had to make? What were some of the the challenges that you were starting to see in terms of customer acquisition? You know, the inbound is still is still a big um, part of how we get leads today, which is really great because the, as the market's getting educated, they find us. Like we, you know, we've been out there for a long time, but we turned up the dial after the Series A on our outbound efforts. So we hired a um, a BDR team started out externally and then eventually brought that entire function in-house. And that helped to do some outreach to the accounts that we thought would be meaningful to us and start to educate the market and start to get meetings in the door that may have otherwise not been shopping for this. So that expanded our reach for sure. And then just continuing to get content out that was more thought leadership content around how to unstuck yourself if you're, you know, if you're stuck in the monolithic game and you are considering moving to something that's more composable. And so that helped as well, because whether somebody was ready then or ready six months later, they remembered us because of the content that was out there. And so that's kind of how we started to build our pie a little bit. So inbound is great, obviously. You know, you get people, they they know what the problem is. They, they're kind of reasonably educated about a solution. They're looking for a solution conversation is a lot easier. When you then move to demand gen and you're having to go and educate a market about the problems that they have and, you know, blah, blah, blah. There's, there's a whole set of new challenges that come along with that. But also, instead of somebody coming to you and, and saying, hey, I'm interested in looking at your product, you've now got to figure out who to go and talk to in a company with thousands of employees. And so... I think you were you were kind of you described a persona or the type of person that you go and look for, but as you were kind of moving into this next stage of demand gen, how easy or hard was it to find those people in those companies? Pretty hard, honestly, because we you know it's it was still pretty new. Again, this was very much an early adopter product in the early days. It's a lot easier now because people are looking for it, so you can find titles and they've heard of. They've either heard of us or they've at least heard of the approach. But at that time, it was hard. And I think that the work that we did in that time frame in you know, 2019, 2020, really had an impact on who's coming to us now because they went over the hump of like, okay, we, we are ready for a change and this is the company we've been learning from for the last couple of years. So it's, a, it's an important seeding effort regardless of how impactful it is to pipeline you know, in the short term. And then I'll, I'll add one more thing that became important at that time, which was starting to develop 
and build out the partner ecosystem as well. Because for building something like this, you're either hiring the talent in-house or you're working with an agency or, or a system integrator. And even the agencies and system integrators that typically worked with the monoliths are on the learning track because they have to figure out like, how do I continue to make, you know, if I can build something this quickly, how do I still make enough money doing it um, with something that's faster? And that's, that's an ongoing challenge for innovation um, with, with those types of partners. So just building out those relationships and the trust and, and figuring out ways to be the go-to partner when those integration and agency partners are ready became really important too. So I, I think when I look at your story, it's, you know, you, you identified the problem, you, you initially built a very simple product, it kind of kept improving it, switched from services to, to a product business, bootstrapped for first 11 years, profitable, multiple seven figures. And then now where you are today, you know, having raised $169 million. The, the story sounds great in terms of you know, growing and, and sure, we can look back at some of this and say, yeah, could you have done this earlier and, and grown faster here or whatever? But generally, it's like there's a lot of upside here. But when it comes to growth, can you give me an example of like, you know, one of the struggles that you, you, you kind of experienced along the way, one of the hard things or a mistake that you made that kind of, you know, people listening to this can realize, hey, you know, yeah, we're talking about some of the accomplishments here, but there was a lot of crap to deal with along the way as well. You know, the hardest thing for me, and I'm a very empathetic leader, so to me, to me, a lot of it is just about keeping people happy. And that often means keeping employees happy, um, customers, keeping customers happy, and doing it in a way that's authentic. And with employees, what I've learned and still learning is you kind of have to hire people that you're excited to work with, but that are you're going to learn from. And that feels super obvious, but the reality is a lot of founders make the mistake of hiring someone they like more than someone that they, that will challenge them. <laughs> and, um, and I've, what I've learned is that you kind of have to hire people that are, that have the experience at the stage you want to be at one to two years out, right? Because they come in, they've seen it before and they can help guide the company down that part of the journey. And at a company of that's high growth like this, we change every six months. So where I was six months ago is different than where I am now. It's a different company. We do things a little bit differently. We have to think differently. We have to act differently. And also the market's shifting around us and all these other things are happening. So what's hard is when you bring in someone who's like super hardworking, busting their butt for you, like really wants to be in it and does everything really well, but doesn't really know how to do it for the next stage. It's really demotivating to them when you bring in someone over them that maybe has seen the scene before and that, you know, they will learn from if they're open to it and if they're willing to get the coaching. But if you've been there from day one, you don't feel like you need the coaching or that, you know, you're, you have that pride that I've taken the business from here to there, which they have. And so that's been probably the hardest thing for me, both emotionally and rationally, just figuring out how to keep the people that I want to keep on the journey happy and engaged and motivated even though it means we do have to bring in new people to help us get to the next stage. And the, the most difficult thing about that is knowing when it might be time for them to go and do it again for another series seed to be company, because that's what they're really good at. And um, just being like super honest there, that's been probably the hardest thing I've dealt with. And, and what about yourself as, as a leader? What do you do to 
to help yourself prepare and evolve kind of for each each stage you know i i i took to uh vishal sunak who's the, the co-founder and ceo of link squares recently and you know when when he started this business like he was the guy building the ruby on rails prototype to go and show to customers and and try to land their first deal and and now the business is like i think they raised about a similar amount to you they they're probably doing about 40 million in arr and his job is completely different now like because there's these specialists you know and senior people all around him and 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 it's kind of like a similar thing where you know yeah you 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 have to kind of figure out how you're going to have the right people but then you've also got to think about kind of looking at yourself and saying how do i evolve but also like how do i grow as a leader but then also how does my role change as a leader because that keeps evolving as well right Absolutely. Yeah. And again, that goes back to every six months, it's a little bit of a different company. And so every six months, I have to get in the mindset of I'm firing myself. And then I'm re-evaluating whether I'm the right person for the job. And obviously, I can't just exit every six months. It's not, it's not that easy. But just asking those questions and posing those questions to my coaches, my mentors, my investors, and um, and hearing the hard feedback so I know where to spend my time for the following six months so I can grow into the next stage of the role. And um, it really requires becoming very resilient, right? Like you have to have a thick skin and you have to learn to take the hard feedback, but that just makes you a stronger and better leader for the next stage. So for me, it's been, it's been a lot of that. It's surrounding myself with people that are willing to um, have those hard conversations to help me grow. Yeah, you know, so I think someone said to me like everybody has a friend who tells you things that nobody else will and and everybody needs that friend, right? It's just like somebody who's going to kind of give you the harsh feedback that ultimately helps, but sometimes whether whether you're going out and talking to customers and trying to get feedback on a product, people want to be nice and they want to help you and they want to say things that they think you want to hear. And then even when you're looking for feedback in your own organization, it's like you know, it's kind of tempered, right? It's just like the, people aren't kind of giving you the the full, you know, unfiltered feedback. So, so yeah, I think that's 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 super important in terms of having those those people around you. Let Let's talk about the kind of where the business has gone to today. So, you, we we talked about like inbound demand gen. Uh, and and now I think a lot of the focus is on ABM account based marketing. Again, like, tell me, like, what has that meant for the business in terms of how you operate and, and, and kind of find customers? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of like the, the market and the product market fit and the uh, propensity to buy has evolved as we've evolved, right? So if you look at where the market was a year or two ago versus now, it was definitely more early adopters that were buying technology like ours. And now you're starting to see it be like sort of early majority and more, more towards the <clears throat> mainstream and with that comes now, like looking at the Fortune 1000 accounts, um, the target profiles within those accounts and what they're looking for and the pain points that they're facing and knowing that we can help bring value to them, starting to just pay attention from an account-based marketing perspective and intent data so that we can give them the right tools and the right messaging when they're looking for it. So it's not in a creepy way necessarily, but more in a way of being helpful and relevant to um, whatever challenges they're facing. Is, is that just like 
a a part of what you're doing or is that like like the ABM is like no, no, the main thing that you know most of your team is focused on in terms of customer acquisition? Uh, it's a it's a big part of it, but it's not the only thing. And everything is everything when you're doing a high growth um, acquisition like this is multi threaded, right? So there's definitely events. There's working with partners. There's um, just general networking, but ABM and then just digital, like you know, surrounding ABM and and um, educational content, thought leadership content is also a part of the game. So it's just kind of what we've added since we've been doing all the other things. As you go from inbound to where you are today in terms of like ABM, what does that do to your sales cycle uh, in terms of how long it takes to to close a deal? Is that becoming like longer and longer? It's it's really hard to answer that because some of like the factors are so, there's so many variables, right? Like if if the market remained exactly the same over the last few years, we would have like a steady state of like, yes, ABM is making it go faster or slowing things down because now we're dealing with, you know, longer longer education cycles. But we've had like from the beginning of COVID, a major slowdown in buying anything because everyone was freaked out and didn't know what was going on to like a really speed, a sped up cycle because everyone's saying we have to do everything digital to like some normalizing in, in the last year to now there's some uncertainty in the market. And so it's, I think market conditions drive sales velocity more than typically just the playbook, but the playbook certainly helps speed things up if you do things right and you know how to bring value quickly and you know to have how to have the right conversations with the right people. So it's a little bit hard to tell, but you you know there's bits and pieces that help be help you just continue to improve your sales efficiency as you learn more. Yeah, I think the last three years or so have just been so weird that like it's hard to make any sense of like you know it's like no anyway that's uh this conversation for another day. I want to wrap up and we'll get onto the lightning round in a minute. But uh, when you look back at you know, all the years that you've been running this business, if there's one thing that you could go back and change that you wish you had done differently, what, was, what would that be? You know, honestly, we've kind of talked about it already, but I would have raised capital sooner because I think we would have been further along now. It really wasn't because I was being stubborn and trying to not, <laughs> not give up equity or anything. I just didn't know better. So I would have um, maybe gotten a, a, a better coach or a mentor to help us make some decisions that were smart earlier on. Okay, um, so let's get on to the lightning round. Uh, I've got s- seven quick fire questions for you. Just try to answer them as quickly as you can. Are you ready? Yes, let's do it. All right, what's one of the best pieces of business advice you've received? I was told that I should restructure my companies to improve the value of them, and that was what led to the split and the great restructure. Interesting. What book would you recommend to our audience and why? I give every new member of my leadership team the High Growth Handbook by Elad Gill, and I recommend every startup founder should read it and just keep it as a reference Bible on their on their desk. What's one attribute or characteristic in your mind of a successful founder? Resilience, by far. What's your favorite personal productivity tool or habit? It is uh, Tuesdays at noon. This started in San Francisco because there was a foghorn that was like the emergency testing system. And now I have a foghorn in my on my phone. I live in Austin now, so I have to do it on my phone. Um, and it is my moment to take a deep breath, release all things bad and negative and retain all things good and positive and move forward. That's Tuesdays at noon. Tuesdays at noon. 
what's the new or crazy business idea you'd love to pursue if you had the extra time? I've always wanted to build a personal CRM for like super networkers. Like that lets you keep track of people you meet, when you met them last, and like their kids' names and their favorite favorite things. There's nothing like that out there, as far as I know. What's an interesting or fun fact about you that most people don't know? Um, I am a certified sommelier, so wine as a hobby is a big part of my life and my side hustle. What does it mean being certified? It means that I've gone through the Court of Master Sommeliers and passed their certification, which is a an all-day long exam that um, I personally took two years to study for. Wow. Wow. And finally, what's one of your most important passions outside of your work? It's kind of related to my work because I brought it in, but it's really advocacy for girls, women, underrepresented minorities in, in the tech field or just in general. And I support a lot of organizations that do things to support that. I sit on some related boards. I'm the owner of Austin Woman Magazine, trying to uplift women in Austin. So a lot of things related to females and advocacy for females. Love it. Awesome. Now, thank you so much for joining me and uh, sharing the story of Content Stack. And I know with when you've been working on a business for, for so many years, it's hard to try to distill that story down into you know the 45 minutes or so that we had. So I appreciate you um, pulling, pulling the, you know, those, those memories out and, and, and kind of helping us understand like the journey and also, you know, some of the decisions you made along the way and, and why you did what you did. And uh, I appreciate, you know, your candor and, and some of the answers that you gave, like, hey, you know, I didn't raise money because I didn't know any better. You know, that's, uh, <laughs> I think that's a great answer. So, but I appreciate you you making the time and and uh, you know sharing your experience. If people want to check out Content Stack, they can go to contentstack.com. And if folks want to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to do that? Um, you can reach me on LinkedIn. That's probably where I'm most active. Or on Twitter, I'm at Neha SF like San Francisco. Sweet. We'll uh, include a link to both of those in the show notes. Thank you so much. And uh, I wish you and the team the best of success. Thanks so much. Great to meet you. And thanks for having me on. My pleasure. Are you still wrestling with rigid spreadsheets that slow down your team? Jotform Tables is a solution you've been looking for. Jotform Tables combines the power of a spreadsheet with the flexibility of a database. You can collect your data through customizable online forms and Jotform Tables automatically organizes and stores all the data submitted through your Jotform forms. You can also import and export files and collaborate with your team effortlessly. All changes are synced in real time, so everyone is always on the same page. But Jotform Tables is more than just a spreadsheet alternative with conditional formatting, data visualization, and more than 250 integrations, it's a complete productivity platform for your team. You can even automate tasks and workflows to save time. Ready to centralize your data, boost your team's efficiency, and take your productivity to new heights? Sign up for free at sasclub.io slash jotform. That's sasclub.io slash jotform. Do you dream of owning a profitable online business or are you looking to sell yours? Bupos.com is the number one platform for entrepreneurs and founders alike. With Bupos, you can discover exclusive listings, browse listings from other marketplaces, or submit your own deal for approval. As the first platform to offer built-in acquisition financing for qualified buyers, Bupos makes it easier than ever to acquire a recurring revenue business without personal guarantees. Their experienced M&A advisory team is dedicated to supporting you throughout the process, ensuring a smooth transaction. Don't miss out on this exciting opportunity. To learn more, visit sasclub.io slash bupos. That's sasclub.io slash B-O-O-P-O-S. Sign up today and get qualified to sell your business or find your next venture.
Hey, are you struggling to grow your SaaS business? Well, you're not alone. But the good news is you don't have to settle for slow growth. The right tools can be a growth game changer. And that's where the SaaS toolkit comes in. This free guide cuts through the noise and shows you the 12 essential types of tools successful SaaS startups have used to get to seven figures and beyond. It gives you specific examples and makes practical recommendations to help you find the perfect growth tools for your needs. So stop feeling stuck. Visit thesastoolkit.com to download your free copy and unlock the growth potential you've been missing. That's thesastoolkit.com.